and welcome to this month's episode of the Divine Comedians podcast. I'm your host, Paula Wiseman, and today I am lucky enough to be chatting with writer, actor and comedian, Tony Harser. So hi, Tony. It's great to be chatting with you today. Hello, Paula. Hello. So let's let's go back in time, shall we? So where did you where did you grow up initially? I, um, I was born in Royal Tunbridge Wells. 23 Birken Road, if you know it at all. I went back there recently with my sister, actually. We went back to uh, stand outside our old house, you know, the place where, um, yes, earliest, one of my earliest memories was sitting on the curb, playing with my cars in the dust at tea time, and somebody coming up and telling me it was my birthday. And I remember at the time thinking, why did they tell me in the morning all day it's been <laughs> my birthday tea time, and they've only just told me. Yeah. <laughs> First rebelliousness of consciousness. Yes, yeah, so then I moved. Um, we moved to Lansing in Sussex, West Sussex, to live with um, Auntie Dolly, our great Auntie Dolly, who was my yes, mum's sister. Um, even though I didn't understand that at the time, yeah, it was all a mystery. We just went to live with this old lady who lived on the on the ground floor and had a picture of the Last Supper on her wall. And had that really deep, you know, that deep Al Japan spread stuff, old people liniment smell. That with the undertow of the commode, tea and <laughs> darkness, and the Last Supper. <laughs> the happy home. Happy times. Um, so, I mean, what what do you remember of your childhood days? Were you fairly were you fairly outgoing, or were you fairly quiet? Oh, no, quiet. I think, uh, who, who, I mean, who actually says, no, I was completely adjusted. I was very chatty, outgoing. I knew all my feelings. You know, I was, but nothing I loved better than was meeting total strangers. <laughs> <laughs> Conversations with them. You know, of course, no, we were all terrified, weren't we? We were all, all desperately looking at the, uh, looking at the carpet. You know, these, actually, these days, I do, a bit of, I do a bit of teaching, and it's that thing with, kids in their phones these days, I would have died for a phone because we just looked at our shoes and studied the carpet, whereas now they look down of just avoiding people's eyes, whereas we had to sort of do it for real with no aids at all. No, no, very quiet and football obsessed. I think I heard um, your, your lovely chat with Ardell Hanlon. I think he said he was football obsessed, yes. Football was the total meaning of my life um, as a kid. Yeah. So, I mean, what were the what were the plans for when you left school? Was there any anything you wanted to be when you when you left? Or um, I don't know where the uh, ideas for things come from. Um, no, I ended up. I mean, ended up going to. I never set out sort of to do acting or comedy. I wanted to be Picasso, basically. <laughs> I did. Um, I did a lot of drawing. I liked football. And I liked all. Um, I used to do a lot of drawing of footballers. You know, all the poses. Actually, I had a, an action man, which you could put in all the positions where the goalkeeper does those saves. You know, they, you know that great position that yeah. Gordon Banks save in Mexico from Pele, that kind of weird. So I used to draw figures. Well, there's, all right, there's that, um, there's a wonderful picture of George Best's heading, and he's sort of floating in the air, and his head is just sort of turned like a ballet dancer. You know, so I, I used to draw footballers and, uh, Yes, and eventually um, uh, wanted wanted to do 
painting. Although there was, there was a, a lot of... Um, our school had a very good drama department. I must say that. I mean, I was... If there was a sort of an art drama mafia, we had it. You know, there weren't any tough kids. If you didn't do drama, you were nobody. You weren't picked upon for doing drama. It was the, all, the, all the people who, like Beckett and stuff like that, were all the thugs. <laughs> <laughs> we had a great... Um, I'm mean, thinking now he's a phenomenal man. Alan Strong, he was a drama teacher. He, um, he used to be an art, an art community arts workshop next door in a place called Shoreham, where he used to work. And he became the drama teacher at the school. Great big tall guy. Um, used to wear a, a purple shiny shirt and a purple sleeveless fleecy waistcoat. <laughs> uh, we did great things like we did. Um, do you know uh, the One Way Pendulum, the N.F. Simpson play? Really mad play, this really mad 50s absurd play. We did, we did that kind of stuff at school, you know. And, uh, and that was sort of mixed with doing, um, doing art alongside. But uh, yes, it was a very good, very progressive school, Bouncer Comprehensive School, Lansing. Uh, headmaster, Mr. Love, Steve Love, who stood for a Labour Party, um, candidate in New Haven under the slogan, all you need is love. <laughs> and it was a very inspiring place. I mean, my English teacher, uh, Dave Lowe, I don't know, I'm having a flashback, I'm having floods of flashbacks. <laughs> he, was, he was a tweed jacketed English teacher and he had his, his main, well, to me, his main appeal, he had an orange and white checked Ben Sherman shirt with an, a knitted tie. And I remember I wrote, some dodgy poem, cobbled. I think at the time, at the time when America, of course, with no, with no name, was I, I wrote some sort of bad copy of some <laughs> some pop tune, and he wrote very um, sweetly. He said, "Oh, you must read T.S. Eliot's Alfred J. Prufrock." And I went to the library and saw that found this little thin book, and thought, "Is he talking? Is he saying that I'm the same as this?" You know, you you know when you're that age when the neurons are sort of straining to try and yeah, make connections. Yeah. Yes, it was a fabulous school. I was very lucky with the uh, art department and um, drama department and the, the arts workshop. Yes, a very liberal and just exactly the way it should be. And now it, they, they've knocked it down now. It's always the way. I think all of my schools have been knocked down now. I don't think any of them have survived. You know, they've all been replaced. Who was your school? Uh, in Sussex, uh, a little town called Bognor Regis, just along oh, the Bognor coast. Yeah, just Butlins, yes, 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 yes. We always used to drive past that, the envious of the, the uh, yes, the, the lilac coloured fence. That, uh, <laughs> yes, the pretty, the pretty looked like a very attractive prison camp, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it probably was. Um, so, I mean, what, what jobs did you do when you left school? Did you kind of go into anything arty? I think my first, uh, my dad was a builder, my first job was when I was about eight. I think he, I went to the building with, you know, like dad's <laughs> taking their son on the building. And very sweetly, the lads clubbed together and gave me a little brown envelope with about two shillings in. <laughs> <laughs> Which was great at the time, but basically it was of an introduction to sort of, uh, you know, mindless slave labour that was going <laughs> This is the group of it you get a silly little brown envelope your first wage packet yeah, my first wage packet but um you know when you're young you worry about toilet facilities 
Uh, it can be, it can be. But, but, but on the building site, I remember it was playing on the sand. That was great. It was like you, know, you go to work and you play in the sand all day, you know, when you're eight. That's... But then the toilet was basically, they dug a deep hole <laughs> and put a shed around it. There was no toilet seat. It was just a shaft, like with everybody's shit at the bottom. Like, <laughs> coloured brown snakes. And you had to hold onto the shed and squat, you know, and that traumatised me for years. I, mean, I got home today and thought, thank God for toilets and flat floors. You know? <laughs> oh, dear. No, I had my first job, I suppose my first um, So I used to work on the building labouring in the summer holidays. I always used to have to go and ask the blokes for a job because my dad, in, by that time, was a foreman. He was, he'd be sat in the porter cabin smoking roll-ups and reading the Daily Mirror. But he always said, you've got to go and ask, go and ask Bob for a job. You know, so I went and asked job, Bob for a job. Yes, and, and sort of bit worked on various um, dormer roofs in the Patcham area. And um, yes, and it's very hard working a cement mixer, as I recall. You kind of, um, yes, and there was electrical hoist. And, you know, even though it's three, three to one, the sand and cement and so much water, getting the right texture of, you know, the, the pug for it to look really yeah, like clotting. Yeah. It's got to look like clotted cream. It's got to look like it's got to have that slight sort of ice cream scoop kind of thing. But you know, it takes a knack to do, and also I had to wheel it up a ramp, up a, a plank onto an electric hoist, which went boom, and it turned bounce, and it, it just all the punches used to jump out of the wheelbarrow and go down the side by the wall. And it went up, and the blokes were very sweet, and they just lifted up this sort of diarrhoea that I've made and, and this sloppy kind of stuff. Basically there's, a, there's a block of flats in Broadwater where the, the cement just changes colour story by story as I slowly learn how to make, how to operate the cement mixer. So, I mean, how, how, did the, how did the comedy thing start? You know, were you writing first or were you, were you performing first? Which, which, came, which came first out of those two? Um... Well, Cliffhanger, I was in a group, a theatre company called Cliffhanger. Um, now, the first proper job, I suppose, after I left, uh, after I left art school, my idea was I was going to paint during the daytime, so I got a job as a croupier in a casino. Oh, blimey. Being very naive about the evils of gambling, and it is evil, I tell you, people lose whole restaurants. It was a horrible, horrible, not, you know, very interesting, eye-opening six months, but, uh, you know, work, basically working from 10 till four in the morning, you know, mm. and I thought I'd be painting in the daytime, but that didn't, you were too tired. But then some friends of mine started this theatre company, so I had to go to the boss at the casino and say, I'm sorry, I've got to leave, I'm joining the theatre company. But <laughs> by that point, they thought I had a career in camp. I was going to be a pit boss. They was going to put me in, they were going to upgrade me to an inspector and give me a pay rise. And so then I joined, um, Pete McCarthy, Rebecca Stevens, and Robin Driscoll, who were cliffhanger, who were doing shows in pubs like the um, King's Head in London, not playing theatres at all. And um, we got a small arts local arts council grant. And slowly, uh, within so I suppose four years, we ended up on the telly just by doing shows. We did uh, um, we did one show, one show in Edinburgh, a playground show called Dig for Victory, which we did free in the, the Wireworks playground. Then we got a bigger Arts Council grant. 
and then did another show called Captive Audience. Then we did um, a show in Edinburgh in the very, very early days, the assembly rooms. At the time, you know, in the sort of mid 80s, when there was only, there was only about six stand up comedians in the whole world back then. There was, you know, you could name them. There was Jim Barclay, there was Andy Dillator, there was Tony Allen, and uh, of course, uh, or the uh, Alexi Sale, you know, that was all of them, you know, um, and John Dowie. And then um, we did, they came from somewhere else, which was a science fiction, a comedy science fiction show based on all those bad sci-fi movies, Plan 9 from Outer Space and Twilight Zone and, and uh, Dawn of the Dead and things like that. And, um, and Mel Smith and Griffey, or Griffey Jones came along and they were just starting up the whole talkback company, production company, and suddenly um, we have management. And, uh, and following on from that, we did, uh, uh, I think it was one of the very first series that Channel 4 ever did. Uh, we did a series of, of Faith Cambridge and somewhere else, which is still available on, on, uh, on YouTube somewhere. You can watch it, watch it all over again. Um, shot all around Brighton, full of stuff, the day at Rain Liver. We had, um, we, had we shot it all around Brighton. Basically the story was, Actually, we did. We did. We tour. We we were tour, still touring a lot, you know, and uh, in Germany and uh, Australia. I think in Germany said that because they take science fiction very seriously in Germany, and they said the the subject of this show is far too serious to be joked about. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, the, the, the idea there was wonderful idea. It was Becky's idea, actually, Rebecca Stevens's idea. She told me recently that it was one of those weird things where you work as a group. You can't figure out whose idea was what you just yeah. everybody takes a bit like pink floyd <laughs> <laughs> even now roger waters said he wrote all of it but <laughs> no but becky said basically it was the idea she had just had this idea of she then thought well australia was like a penal colony but in science fiction terms wouldn't it be great if there was a satellite where you sent all the prisoners and so basically all prisoners in the future had their minds wiped and sent to a place that looked like earth in a place called Middleford, and the story starts. We 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 love soap operas, so these soap opera characters um, are living their normal life, and this mysterious stranger arrives, who beams down into the same space as the butcher, and explodes the butcher. It's a butcher butcher, I think the joke was, <laughs> and he's got he brings with him this strange metallic case, which he's got this aerial inside which when you put on, puts on these, these 3D glasses and that reactivates who you really are. And you realise you aren't Wendy, a local policewoman. You're not, I played Martin, who, who was a sort of a radical anti-American guy. Uh, and we all realised that we were, we we're all prisoners from the future who had our minds wiped. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds very much like something you'd see now, isn't it? You know, that, that, that people are making now. So it was very much before its time, ahead of its time. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was brilliant. I mean, the, yes, it was made by, by then TVS, John Dale was a producer who, I think actually like in, pre, in pure B-movie terms to save money, he used the local news crew, film crew, rather than a proper film. <laughs> the people who did the South Today people, who were great, who could do the job. It was cutting corners, it was you know, viciously cutting corners. Right? And, you know, the, the special effects, there was a great company called any effects, I think they were called, but like, there was, I remember there was one scene where we wanted, because there, there was like, things like the giant prawns in the sewers. Basically what happened, as soon as the people found out that they were prisoners from the future, 
an Armageddon scenario was put into place. So the world would end in a B-movie fashion. So it started raining snakes. <laughs> there were giant prawns running through the sewers and all this kind of mayhem was going on. So the, the sinister shots, I mean, this was the time of uh, all those great sort of hi-fi science, science fiction budget movies, you know, Poltergeist and all that stuff. We love all the Spielberg stuff. But we had like um, tins of crab where they cut a slot through the shelf of the cupboard and had a stick and jiggled the tins <laughs> of crab. <laughs> the tin crab was coming alive. Yeah, but stuff like that, real big budget. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, I mean, it, the acting is terrible. But then we get was our first TV job, so we didn't know what we were doing. It was that I don't know if you saw that that Michael Caine masterclass, yeah, which is his whole method. Forget Stanislavski and method technique. His technique is just don't blink. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's all I thought when we do TV. Just stand there, you know, and your eyes start. <laughs> but it looks good. Otherwise, people are blinking or moving too much on the telly. Is such a yeah. So the acting is is sort of properly um, properly B movie, but we had stuff like um, there were zombies in Maidstone and <laughs> we had these two tires are full of smoke in these quiet crescents and there were zombies moving around. And looking back, I mean they build a whole series out of that these days, and we like used like oh, five, yeah. five seconds of it. So um, yeah, so that was our first uh, baptism of um, of yes of, of TV work and TV acting, which is. Not as easy as it looks when you've been doing it. <laughs> well, that was the beauty of the 80s as well, wasn't it? Do you know what I mean? Anything was possible, I suppose, at the time. Yeah. And there was just all these kind of weird madcap ideas we were, we were seeing on the, on the TV. Yeah, certainly. The, yeah, the, yeah, certainly the Twilight Zone. Well, no, it's a little bit like, yes, yeah, very similar to Number Nine, Inside Number Nine. Yeah, this goes yeah. On. We did a radio series called Cliff, uh, with... Uh, Produced by the lovely Nick Simmons, uh, a couple of series for Radio Four, which was um, the world of Cliffhanger, and we, uh, we, we again we did different stories, like the, those original Twilight Zone stories, those standalone, slightly arch, get away with bad acting and over the top characters, and a little bit ironic kind of stuff. But yes, absolutely, that uh, that kind of yes, in the same time, all this comic strip was happening, and uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so my first memory of you was in Morris Miner's Marvelous Motors back in the late 80s. You know, it was just it was just crazy. It was just totally, you know, unlike anything that we'd ever seen before. And like they're, they're on top of the pops with stutter rap. And <laughs> it was just a crazy time. Um, so, I mean, how did you meet Tony Hawks initially? Well, Tony, um, Tony was actually in, it was a little bit of, you can f follow all these traces in show business and realise it's all nepotism, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tony lived in Brighton and when, uh, going back with me, we'd done two, a couple of um, theatre sh theater shows. Now, basically, we, we wanted to do a musical, so we thought we'd get a female musician. And at the time, we had a one of our group, Pete McCarthy, who sadly no longer with us, um, but dear old Pete, who came from Warrington, and he persuaded, he knew the promotions manager at Greenall Whitley Brewery, and he got us some money to do, we did a show called The Famous Five Go North, which is about the famous five thwarting a communist uprising in the <laughs> north of England. The deal was we played around local pubs in the Warrington and Liverpool area, lunchtime and evening shows at places like, remember, there was one place, the uh, 
the leather bottle in Hale Wood, where basically the landlord said, don't park, we had a, we had a, a blue transit van we used to travel around, they said, don't park it there, the kids will have the wheels up it. And we were kind of, what? <laughs> we didn't know, know anything of that mind your car business. Yeah, yeah. Stuff. And so we played in this place, and basically the whole audience that night, you know, just no, everybody, no, everybody had their backs first on the bar, and we would just cut, cut it, and fortunately there was loads of songs. Basically, our musician, Christy, a lovely, great musician, she had a nervous breakdown and never wanted to work with us. Oh okay, my God. It was a nightmare, you know, trying to entertain people in Liverpool pubs at lunchtime with, with musical comedies. So we advertised for a musician. Tony Hawks turned up, was a brilliant piano player. And for the edition, he had written two songs um, for the show that became Dig for Victory. Um, I think we gave him the brief, and he wrote, uh, yes, he wrote Squadron. I played a character called Squadron Leader MCC and also played his twin sister. <laughs> we used to play loads of characters. And he wrote, and Tony had just written this Squadron Leader MCC song off the back of his head. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you get the job, you get the job, you know. And, um, yeah, so we had a happy year touring, and we ended up we ended up going to Edinburgh with that show, as I say. But then, the, unfortunately, the next show wasn't a musical, and um, and we sort of sort of a party company. But then Tony got in touch when he was doing the Morris Minor thing, and somehow Angus Head, who <laughs> appeared, I mean, I think it was I, even I thought it was a weird show. I was <laughs> why I was dressed in a kilt, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't have a Scottish accent, did I? No, I had a voice like that, didn't I? Hello, <laughs> <laughs> no, what do you do? I think the sound people were always complaining because it was like the, the volume was going into the red. <laughs> yes, the lovely Phil Herbert, who played my uh, my sidekick, was, yes, it's still to this day, he, yeah, when we contact each other or speak, he just goes, Bellow no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was, um, yes, it was a very happy show. There was, and all I remember is funny what things that you remember, but I remember because I had to put this kilt on every week. And not to say that the, the wardrobe guy was gay, but um, it became a very funny ritual every week. But before, before the recording, it used to take a lot of time adjusting my sporum. Getting my sporum. <laughs> the other thing I remember was um, Neil Malarkey, I think it was co- who co wrote it, I think, and uh, Tony. And, and we were doing some. Film, filming in Belsize Park. I think I was coming out of a drain or something. And because you had, you know, the brilliant thing is when you do film, you have outside catering, you know, usually a bus and stuff. And it got near lunchtime and they put all this food, these prawn salads and stuff on the pavement out, you know, on, <laughs> on Belsize Park on the high street. <laughs> um, as if being in filming wasn't enough, you know, you get, you know, dinner as well. And bless her socks, all these old ladies kept on stopping and going, what's going on here? What's going on? What's going on here? What's going on? Excuse me, what's going on here? And Neil Malarkey, completely, completely straight face, said, um, we're giving away free food today. And so every, all these old ladies said, oh, that's very nice. And they were all digging into the free food, you know, helping themselves to prawn salad and stuff. But um, no, it was a very happy show, and I, I don't know why I didn't get another series. I think it uh, didn't you think it was a bit nuts though? I mean, it was a bit, it was like, it was like sort of the monkeys meet wacky races or something, wasn't it? It was, oh, it was, it was totally off the wall, you know. But I think around that time in the late 80s, comedy was very, I don't know, it was, it was like it was trying to find its, find its feet again, you know. There was this new, obviously, as you said, like comic strip were coming through. 
and there's all these all these new guys coming through as well and as i said it's very very of its time mm. uh, you wouldn't see you wouldn't see anything like it now i don't think yeah people kind of really i think it was it was you know, i remember with cliffhanger we our kind of thing was originally you know we like doing theater but we like movies more so we kind of thought and it was kind of, you, you do have a sort of, con, not a concept, where you kind of go, let's do plays as if they're movies. Yeah. yeah. And we'll do, you know, we'll do our own vocal sound effects or whatever. You know, <laughs> so you, people were taking, oh, like Tony was taking, let's take the, the monkeys kind of idea. That's long since passed. Yeah. The, and team it up with them, some fighting some, some, some baddies. So people were playing, playing around with different genres and turning things upside down and, uh, and curiously enough, I mean, just sorry to not, not name dropping, but we we did cliffhanger, we did plays in sets, which at the time everybody was being stand up comedians. And I swear we didn't, we didn't, he wasn't famous at the time. But we, after one show, Ben Elton came backstage and was very, very nice and enjoyed it thoroughly. And obviously something went into his head. He said, What a brilliant idea doing plays in sets. Because you kind of, you kind of, I mean, Alan Aitman was like as if, it was like as if plays hadn't existed before. Yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah. We were kind of going, like you go to uh, watch an Alan We stole one Alan Aitborn set idea where there was two flats. I can't remember what play it is, but there's two flats and they they're joined, they got the same sofa, but there's two different rooms. Well, we stole that. So that <laughs> idea, that idea, old-fashioned idea of having sets and props and tables or even something to lie down on the daytime when you're, when you've got nowhere else to go in the theatre, having a, having, a, having a set with a bed in it so you can have a sleep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even even stuff like Bottom, you know, with their, the way their, uh, the whole flattened thing was was set up. Mm. And I'm sorry, I mean, they, I think they, yeah, I mean, I think I, th- I, read, a, I read a sort of a re, a re, not re-summary, but a reboot of it. But they, 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 you know, they were shamed, unashamedly quoted Beckett, you know, or, you know, or Waiting for Godot, or those kind of, you know, two blokes in a room. Yeah, two really yeah. sad bits of room, you know, and that's kind of, it's not exactly plucked off the sort of light entertainment tree. There's a bit of, <laughs> there's a bit of a Morecambe and Wise. It's Morecambe and Wise in the best bedroom with yeah. takeaway, you know, with a set by Tracy Emin, isn't it? Yeah. Morecambe yeah. and Wise, Tracy Emin's bed kind of thing. But, uh, yes, all the producers at the time were very, you know, like John Lloyd and uh, Paul Jackson and Jeff Posner. You know, it was very important to have those kind of people with the the, the kind of vision, visions of and all the people like a talkback. And uh, when we first got signed up to talkback, there was there was a, they had offices above this tobacconist in in Carnaby Street. Uh, it was a great and it was very rock and roll. There was like a jukebox in the corner of the room and a leather sofa. And there was Jimmy Mulville from Hattrick had a, had one little office up the stairs and PBJ Bennett Jones from Tiger Aspects. So all the all of the Cambridge comedy mafia were there, but it required those people who had that kind of, it's like, in mu- I mean, it's that thing in music, isn't it? Where they say, where would Led Zeppelin be without Peter Grant? Or where would The Who be without Kit Lambert? You know, those, that kind of, those people were very important. Our, you know, we had Jamie Ricks and, uh, and people like Nick Simmons. Again, you needed, you needed those, those people who, um, yes, the producers. Although actually, the, you know, in terms of what the producer, remember somebody, our director of they came from somewhere else. Um, his mum asked him what he what he did, and he said he was the director. So what does the director do? And he explained, oh, he decides what the camera is. And the producer, what does the producer do? And the producer 
gets gets the money and uh, so well that's not very much you know the producer decides whether it's all right you know they're, they're, they're the pope they're the pope this i'm the super punter this will work trust me you know so like paul jackson you know bless his heart see i thought you know with uh took a punt on morris minor yeah yeah, I mean, you've, you've worked on some huge shows over the years. Obviously, Smith & Jones, we mentioned earlier. Alan Partridge, you're involved with. Alexi Sales stuff. And Mr. Majika with uh, Stanley <laughs> Baxter, which was like another... It was around the, around the same time, wasn't it? And it was just... It was huge. Mr. Majika was, was, was huge at the time. Yes, the Mad Wizard. I can't remember what he, what he did with exactly. His, with, his, but... with his hair. His little, little tuft of hair on his... It's like that, yes, in the... Yes, I mentioned yes, Basil Brush. I was, Basil Brush was revisited as I think I played it. I think I played that. Yes, the eccentric tramp who turns out to be a millionaire. That plot. I think <laughs> I was. Um, no, it was wonderful. Lots of wonderful um, shows going on there. Well, you remember Bodger and Badger? Yes, 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 yes. Of course. Bodger and Badger. I did. Oh God, I did. No, because Andy Cunningham again. Oh, Andy, and sadly is not no longer with us he died a couple of years back now um and um he's dearly missed the brighton they've not actually in brighton they they have actually named a bus after him oh wow that's always always a good sign but um yes and i did I, I did yes i did a live tour of um budger and badger once so uh somebody dropped out at the last moment they, they did their hip in or something so i stood in the last moment to i gave my mr Pooh, mr pew and we did a, 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 a very, very lovely uh, summer doing regional civic theatres full of screaming, 2,000 screaming kids, <laughs> being Mr Pugh. And the basic joke was, you know, um, yes, who are you, Mr Pugh? Mr Pooh? Mr Pooh! Because <laughs> apparently a thing Pooh is the most galvanising thing for a 10-year-old. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. What was Stanley Baxter like to work with? I mean, he's, he's still around now, obviously. He's, he's... Is he just still around? He is just yeah, around, Yeah, he? yeah. Yeah, he's, he's got to be in his, his 90s, I would say. Yes, no, no, perfect, perfect gentleman, absolute gentleman. Yeah, one of those, uh, yeah, it's one of those dream professionals you can't believe that somebody so famous is so nice and so organised or so humble and, and, and accommodating, you know. The, the, the classic, being able to, Put it at their ease and um, yes, yeah, so and not have any status or any airs, airs or graces. Actually, I did a little job on another thing, which was um, Richard Briers as well. Actually, last night I saw the, an episode of The Good Life, but I met Richard Briers once, and, it's, and again, you think, is he as nice as he seems? And in the flesh, yeah, he is. Oh, He's that's kind good of, to know. You know he, that kind of oh, yes, yeah, so I, I haven't met that many horrible, snotty um, showbiz. <laughs> No, I was going to. Sorry, I was going. To, I was going to bang on about the Mr. Pooh thing, if I may. The, <laughs> go on, go on. <laughs> yeah. No, it was just. It was just in terms of how you're always learning stuff. But yeah. Um, but no, it was about three. We'd done about three shows, and uh, and uh, when when the first Mr. Pooh moment happened, the kids start going, Mr. Pooh, Mr. Pooh, and stupidly improvising the following day, I think it was in Aldershot or somewhere. I said. Uh, I said to them. <laughs> How foolish is this? I said, all right, come on, get it out of your system. Come on, get it out of the system. It's, it's, it's no, there's no harm in saying it. Come on, come on, Mr. Pooh, come on, Mr. Pooh. 15, 20 minutes later, 
after the, the kids have been shouting non-stop and can't be shut up, so maybe give you permission. I just remember at the interval, Andy, seasoned professional, he just came up to me and said, have you learned your lesson, Tony? I said, yes, I have. <laughs> yes, I humbly have, sir. Yes, you, don't, you give them a tiny amount of poo factor, but that's it. Oh, they usually hopped up on sweets and stuff as well, aren't they? So they're all... Yes, yeah, a nice... Um, yeah, it's nice, nice, it's nice being in um, in other people's shows or you know, finding uh, finding a place in uh, in things like uh, yeah, little bits on the on the day to day. I can remember. Uh, actually, I don't know if you can remember. I think it was it was on the radio in like ninety one. I think I was in Edinburgh, and it was on at Saturday lunchtime. I do I do remember com- being completely taken in because the tone of it was absolutely perfect, veracity and. Uh, it was that great sketch they did the um, today the railways, British Rail's driving staff have, are on strike today, are in dispute over health and safety concerns. We go over to such and such and such and such to speak to the so what it seems to be the problem? You've called out your members for another two weeks uh, conditional strike and you're you're working to order and so what seems to be the problem here? Is this an issue that we can resolve with management or will arbitration be necessary? But what is what is the real issue? And, and, this, and <laughs> I can't remember who did it. But I said, well, you're just going to look up the tracks there. You see, where I'm standing here, they're quite wide. They're like, like in the far distance, they're, like, they're almost, t- they are touching, aren't they? And I'm having a train which is full of people, wives and families and kids and stuff. <laughs> the wheels are going to get bigger than the actual track. And it's gonna it's gonna come off the tracks, isn't it? I mean, it's gonna, sense of, it's gonna come off the tracks. <laughs> I don't want to think it was that sort of um, yes, they nailed that real sort of delightful naturalism, that kind of again, which is I suppose like Alan Partridge, wasn't it? Where people yeah. are just are, are just picked up the intonations of I mean, even when you you know, listen to Channel Four News or Jon Snow, those sort of offhand noteless or tuneless until tomorrow you know that kind of thing no humanity whatsoever <laughs> in fact there's a bloke who does there's a bloke there in our local area in southeast today there's a bloke who usually does location reports and i swear he can barely show interest in it was on yesterday it was usually they got they got this uh, slightly bright you know, breezy kind of manner you know women with lovely teeth and blonde yeah, hair you know. yeah and he got and he was going and Four hundred migrants arrived in the coast on such and such tomorrow, and they were there. And, were there. and what will the council be doing? <laughs> <laughs> you can't just raise your voice like that as if to show interest, you know. And you realise, you know, the difference is all those tiny increments between somebody who means it and someone who's doing it badly, and somebody who's doing it supremely well. I mean, some of the it's very hard being, you know, talking off an autocue and making it. You know, make it absolutely perfectly and familiar. And you know, I think on you know on uh, on Channel Four. Um, but yeah, when you when you really really have that natural manner and you can imitate it, you know, which 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 Chris Morris did. You know, did yeah, so. he always seemed so genuine, though, didn't he? You you thought he was being totally truthful, and that, that mm. was the that was the beauty of it. That he was so so straight faced in what he was doing. Yes, and just with a slight you know with a slight little savage. There's a sort of undercurrent, undercurrent of sort of public school cruelty going on, isn't it? The O'Hanrahan, the relationship with O'Hanrahan was, was borderline fagging, wasn't it? <laughs> it was kind of, 
of sadism. <laughs> but again, weirdly, in real in real life, I mean, Chris is is uh, he's such a nice, affable bloke, but, but the, and the the degree to which that you know the savageness that comes out of from in Brass Isle for lions and stuff like that is just tucked around the back. But in, if you met him, you would you know you would want him to marry your daughter. You know, he's <laughs> the nicest in the world, but with this sort of savage. And again, lessons for me. I mean, I did the there was a swimming pool sketch on the day today, which was just impossible ways of working because that that did become a like in, like on Smith and Jones, for instance, or and some of it was very very well written and very very well crafted. I mean, certainly the the people who used to write the head to heads, that real dense sort of Cambridge footlights type writing, but then then sometimes it was like. The joke, the joke of the amount of words just sort of kind of got in the way. Like the, the swimming pool sketch, I come out, I've lost my key, and Dunes behind the counter, and I go up and say, I've lost my key, could you get um, a, a pass key? I mean, I've, I've managed to look my key in the thing. We did it once, and, and uh, I think I tried to put half a joke in it or something. Amanda, she came out and said, no jokes. And you just do it completely normally. You know, I'm slightly controlling, and Dunes brilliantly offhand and then you go fuck it and storm off and walk down the road <laughs> in the swimming, swimming trunk <laughs> well, it's funny um but weirdly got rid of all that all of that constructed nature of comedy there was no there was no sense that anybody had made it and actually it was all completely improvised anyway which again was just at a certain point where sort of overly written comedy the aesthetic of it just became it was yeah, yeah. You know, it was brilliant in the days of peter cook and and it still is, but then suddenly, the, you know, in a, one of those great sort of modernistic sweeps, you're going to go, oh, just get rid of all of that. You know, like, uh, like I like this, this life or the, is it, or this is England, the movie and that kind of stuff. Because there's nothing nicer than just ordinary people talking and, and they aren't, um, you know, syntactically correct and they do repeat themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all of those, all of those things that you're trying to iron out or not using not using the same word in the same sentence, because if you say sentence too often, it's a bit boring, but people say sentence a lot. You know, stop saying sentence. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's kind of, you know, the, the, way, the way comedy has sort of changed, I don't know where it's got, quite where it's going now. I kind of, yeah. I've lost a little bit at the moment. I'm Would I lie to you? I think that's wonderful. Especially the imperious Bob. <laughs> He's a little diamond, isn't he? Some of the stuff he comes out with is just crazy. You, you know, you couldn't make it up. You literally couldn't make it up. No, he's got he's got some miss. Actually, I saw I saw some photographs of Keith Moon. He's got that sort of twinkle that Keith Moon, the drummer of the Who, has that sort of mist. Yeah. Laid back with danger and stuff. But where the mischief uh, quite comes from, you don't kind of know. Yes, I think it's a divine spark. He'll pay for it one day, I'm sure. <laughs> Uh, you mentioned Mel, Mel Smith a little while ago. How did you get involved with him and Griff? Obviously, Mel not with us anymore. Such a, an amazing comic actor. His comic timing was just incredible. Um, yes, through, uh, through Talkback. And, uh, and uh, in fact, when we... Um, he's very, very serious. I mean, he's a, a very good film director as well. But um, I, think he's one of, I think one of his main reputations was, I think when he did... Smith and Jones, he had a sort of memory where he could just remember sketches like that. Um, so it's very, very fast. I think Griff was slower learning things. That used to annoy Griff quite a lot. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, but Mel was always very, very supportive. In fact, we did, when, we, when Cliffhanger, we did a sitcom, one, one series called uh, Moulding Sarge um, for the BBC. And very sweetly after we'd done it, I think it was in the White Horse in, off Carnaby Street, and he said, why did you ask me to be Sarge? And we said, we didn't think you'd be interested, Mel. He said, I killed to be in it. There was a certain, certain degree of awe, I suppose, that, that some of those people, but at the same time, they were, they were you know, you, if, you, if you sort of hit a level, and usually it was, no, I did a little bit in um, his sitcom, Colin Sandwich, mm. one of the characters. In fact, I was, I was on the M25 and I dropped, dropped in at the service station because some of you realise people still do watch it. And I went along and I bought, I, I treated myself to the one of those service station pine chips which is slightly overdone under those lamps, but they're kind of nice because they're crispy and the gravy's gone. And, uh, and the guy behind the counter said, uh, Colin Blakestock. I said, what? We <laughs> <laughs> remember my character from that again. I couldn't even remember what it was. In terms of getting on or sort of finding a level, I remember we'd, me and Rodney were doing two smaller parts in uh, Colin Sandwich. And we turned up uh, at breakfast and the night before, I'd seen on the TV, there was a wonderful, Sue Laurie was hosting a, a discussion about sexism in comedy. And um, one of the people was Johnny, Johnny Spate. You know, the great Johnny Spate. He was immaculate wearing a dog, dog tooth tweed suit. Very, very smart. And um, so I told this story to Mel and everybody around. And basically Sue Laurie did this great big long intro saying, you. You wrote your death as depart, you know, Garnet, possibly one of the most sexist, foul mouthed characters, racist. How do you justify portraying such a character? Don't you think that portraying such a character could, could possibly encourage those kind of attitudes and those beliefs? Slight pause, and Johnny Spate said, So, may I first say what a smashing frock you wear? And after, after doing that, and Mel said, oh, do you want to be Colin Blakestock? You need to work in the office. But it was that kind of something about the, you know, the natural argot of the way people talk or is how you get on. I, actually, I always remember making, whenever I used to bump into him, last time we saw him, he was doing a play, a two-handed play at the Theatre Royal, and we all went to see him. But he always quotes, I mean, I, I remember quoting, quoting to him with years, years back, We'd done a show in Cliffhanger Time in Eastbourne and we packed up the van. The pub shut at 11 and we were desperate for a drink. So we went to this dodgy nightclub and we were queuing outside. It was about midnight, at which point this bloke legged it out of the club and ran up the road like the clappers, like running like Buster Keaton, you know, that real comedy <laughs> legs going. Like that. At which point this fierce woman comes out with this girl with her makeup streaming down her face, mascara all the way down, all splattered down her thing. And a friend who's helping her along looks up the road and shouts, she fucking loves you, you <laughs> cunt. <laughs> and every time I saw Belle, he would go, she fucking loves you, you cunt. <laughs> it was like the perfect, the perfect Englishness, that sort of grand, tragic love affair and you know, the boldest you... <laughs> Shakespearean English. You know, I suppose that's the great thing about it, isn't it? You know, with, for something that always joins 
you know, that sort of taste that goes across people. I remember I'd look, actually, I'd inkling, you like um, divine comedy, don't you? <laughs> yes. yes. And it was, um, the, I hadn't listened to them, but that's on To the Rescue. It's a yes. new, I think. But it's that kind of thing when you, and it's like a, like they also, he did also did the, the um, Father Ted tune, didn't he? Yeah. But it's like you get that sort of groove where, reminds me of a bit of Wilco, the American band. Oh, right, okay. Rockstop, Foxtrot, where it's like miserable, miserable lyrics with a beautiful melodic <laughs> lyrical tune. But then the way those two things sit together, you know, yeah, it's the yeah, same, yeah, yeah. same kind of thing with comedy or that kind of, once you share that, once you share the thing, the thing in common, that's where, that's how you get on, really. Yeah, that's how yeah, I, yeah. So you, you've played a lot of coppers over the years. So, I mean, <laughs> why, why, why do you think you've played a lot of coppers? Is it, yes, your, your, your heights, maybe, do you think, or, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've played a few coppers, yes, authoritarian, yes. Yes, it's my inner authoritarian nature coming out. Um, no, I suppose it's funny, I mean, with... No, I played it in another of our theatre shows, um, uh, Jim Slip Vicar, which was about the gutter press, which was going to be, it was going to be a Channel 4 series, but they cancelled it at the last minute, which was a shock. I remember walking, walking down Charlotte Street and we're going, what do you mean we can't do it? No, nobody told us we couldn't do anything before. <laughs> no, but I played a copper in that. Again, you talk a bit like this. But if you talk tough like that, you can say things like, oh, no, a lovely little place. It's... Uh, it's in my hall. If I had a cat, that'd be a lovely place for it to snuggle up down there. You know, <laughs> so you know, toughness and sentimentality, or soft, or softness. You know, you can just because you, we've got all of those Sweeney and all those kind of tough policemen and life on Mars, all those kind of coffers. So it, there's kind of room to play with that kind of character. Or that, 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 yes, around about that time, I was in a when we did Morningside. I was in, in a pub in town in Brighton, and it was scary this scouser i was at the bar and he put he said hey you're a copper hey you i said what did you hey you you're you're a fucking copper aren't you? you're a fucking fuzz i said no you got mistaken mistake me for somewhere else i'm sorry he said no you are you're a fucking copper you are a fucking copper and i said look honestly mate i don't know what you where you've been but i'm not a policeman he said, hey no we saw you on that morning side on the tv um, and basically there was there was six six scousers who'd come down to Brighton for a jolly. And so I joined them for a drink. And that was, then there was a weird loop. I said about, you know, community art. I started out doing community arts, community art workshops, you know, doing inflatables with kids and space projects, you know, paint, you know, putting yeah, yeah. cardboard boxes with foil and turning yourself into a robot and stuff, you know, lying on the floor with a, a red light bulb listening to Pink Floyd. You know. <laughs> All, all that kind of trippy, trippy kind of stuff, and um, and these lads who weren't tough at all, only because everybody everybody's got a scout accent sound tough. And we said no, we and they went. So we they said that we we went to an arts workshop in Liverpool, and we said and we did Star Wars, and it was bloody great. And they t and they described this whole drama that one summer, which is stuck with them. You know this sort of power of theatre for being tough and acting things out. That sort of simple kind of pleasure you get of uh, pretending to be um, authoritarian or... Now, in fact, I did... Um, you remember the group, there was a group called Frank Chickens, a very funny Japanese duo. They had a great album. I was in their Christmas show. They did a Christmas show at Brentford Waterman's 
art centre called Club Monkey. It was based on the Monkey King and Jackie Chan movies. And I was a policeman in that. <laughs> but, they, but Casico had this weird idea. It was some mad plot where this English Lord Tom was dragged down an alleyway and did certain things with dogs. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know, it was the weird club and stuff. But I just remember it was a large, largely black audience and with families and... And I just had this one speech where I went out and I was a copper and I just went out and it was a bad joke, but it was going before the show starts. So I just have to word with you all. This show does contain references to dogs. <laughs> dogs can be dangerous. You can start off with soft dogs, but that can very, very quickly move on to heavier dogs. And before you know it, you can, you can be a dog addict. So please. <laughs> but again, for me, you know, in terms of having no status at all, it's just funny. It's just funny playing status or just showing power, or being. You know, I suppose it's like Charlie Chaplin playing Hitler. Yeah, or, yeah, or, you know, yeah. And you all do what I say, you know, or being a mafia, <laughs> mafia boss, or you're dead, or you're, you know, playing high status, high power. Yeah, so it's sort of playing, isn't it? Really, it's. A, well, if I'd got a job on the bill, I wouldn't have minded. Oh, that would have been good, wouldn't it? I could have been, I could have been Reggie's mate. I would love to have been Reggie's. Mate. <laughs> they could have had you walking slowly away from down the street. <laughs> um, so, do you have a do you have a favourite period in your in your in your long career? Well, it's the it's obviously the present. Isn't it? No, I'm quite happy at the moment. I mean, I do. Um, no, I take one day we I do a teacher writing course at University of Brighton, which is mm -hmm. great because. Uh, you know, people who do visual, visual art, a bit like myself, you know, one of the things that has always interests me is how visual imagination and verbal imagination go together. So I'm kind of interested in doing that. Um, I'm also I'm been I'm doing a, a funny project about money at the moment as well, researching banks trading money, which is a little bit political, which is something I'm working on. My favourite periods, I mean. I mean, lots of people say the early days, but it was you know, the early days, the working in pubs and the, the fairs, there was, I mean, there were sort of medieval fairs in Suffolk. So there were sort of horse fairs and goose fairs, Bungay, Beckles, Barsham, which were, were, which weirdly were sort of a bit hippie and medieval. And it was, they were very, very, very small Glastonbury's. There was like yeah, a beer yeah. tent, lots of street theatre, and just jolly good family days out, you know, and uh, sort of go, you go to see a play, then have a pint of beer and look up at the stars, you know, that, that kind of epiphany, you know, that kind yeah. of just as, just as the, um, the, the dew and the, it starts getting a bit damp, you know, that when you start getting a bit damp as it gets around midnight. There's a whole host of lovely companies at the time, like the famous uh, Incubus company, Paddy Fletcher's company, Incubus from London and uh, the Natural Theatre, from Bath and um, people like that who did street theatre. Yeah, day-long street theatre. We used to do ballroom dancers, street theatre. And there was this one girl, Patty B from uh, Incubus, who, with coffee decks and warts and stuff, used to do the classic crone, filthy clothes, and had a, the scruffiest little bit of wood, like a breadboard. And I just remember, she just used to go around um, I remember laugh, laughing like crazy. She used to walk walk into the crowd and she'd go, Mary Magdalene's pubic hairs. Mary, and basically she plucked her pubes and put them in little glass jars. But she didn't say it very often. She would, sort of, she, just, she would just walk all day and every minute just go, Mary Magdalene's pubic hairs. 
so that kind of stuff is touring sometimes it was fun yes with tony i mean tony was also the driver because we needed a driver because pete had lost his license so tony hawks was driver and we you know we'd be asleep in the back and then for 12 o'clock at night tony would suddenly burst into a barry manilow song <laughs> at the top of his oh yeah don't do that there's touring days kind of um yes kind of pleasant coming back yes coming back yes coming back tired on the motorway in the big mercedes van with avalon you know roxy music's avalon more than this playing at as you cruise along the motorway at 11 o'clock at night towards the ferry, that kind of, yeah, those yeah. kind of, that's the romantic part of it. You know, the other bit was putting sets in and out of bloody vans and, and um, you know, waiting for the sweat to dry off your, your back. <laughs> yeah, all sorts of different periods. Of, uh, yeah, certainly the early stuff, the knack of comedy or the, or the, or the, the bear pit of comedy is hoping that people laugh and, and you got a sense with Rick and Bob that they didn't care whether people laughed or not. Yeah, yeah. So you carry on. You just carry on regardless, and and uh, hope people can sort of catch up eventually. Even though you know, at the same time, you know that uh, addiction to the laugh. I mean, in all the years when we were touring shows, you know, we would do, you know, I don't know, maybe sort of hundred shows of a year, and um, it was a complete mystery. You can play the same show and do the same line you know what you thought were your belt you know belters your bangers you knew yeah you knew, yeah you knew a, like 10 punch lines that were fairly immune you know they were bulletproof but you can do a show like that and when your first one gets done nothing yeah you know and the second one you're in canterbury or somewhere or you're in devon or somewhere and the second one goes for nothing and then some medium pissy sort of under substitute gets a huge laugh from nowhere you know you that that kind of vulnerability yeah of, yeah 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 of chasing the laugh and not knowing where they're coming from anywhere you know and because uh, you don't know where the you know the, the surprise the prize factor of um actually very funny the funny there was <laughs> there was on facebook somebody somebody I halfway knows no well posted a, a picture of debbie harry with um before she had blonde hair when she was little mousy hair and i just sort of Glibly wrote, uh, "Why did you bother to dye it? She looks great, Mousy." And uh, his friend Sarah wrote back, uh, "But that wouldn't have been such a good name for a band, would it?" <laughs> and you kind of realise you suddenly realise <laughs> I was a straight man. You know, I just, I just, I just set up some. And actually, in terms of cliffhanger and way Pete McCarthy and Robin Driscoll and Becky Stevens and I were very often worked together. Because very often I'm, you know, I'm more serious than than attempting to be funny. But very often, if you're rehearsing something, we do a scene, and two of us would do it, and the other two would watch out. And the people who'd done the work were heading for something serious, trying to make a point, trying to make a point, get into the emotion of it, doing this, doing this, doing this. And the people who sat there with their feet up just go, and that's the punchline, which floors everyone. Which the people <laughs> in the scene can't. Do. But like you know, in every you know, it always amazes me in every pub you go to that kind of those explosions of laughter where some yeah, people yeah. can light the touch paper and set something off. I mean, nobody knows where that quite where that comes from, and you know, it's it's a bit like sort of wearing being a man in black with a with a silver pistol. You spend your whole life searching for that thing, and you track down. 
<laughs> that magic of the laugh. One day I will find it. One day. Make it my- who would have been your comedy heroes growing up? Who would you have looked up to? Who would have made you laugh? No, it's hard. I mean, it's, uh, probably Hancock. Hancock was a bit. Yeah. I was a bit too old. For Hancock. But to be honest, I didn't get the goons. People go on about the goons. I did not get the goons at all. I just thought it was sort of self folding in the water. You know, it was a bit. Uh, I suppose I mean, Python. Some of the, um, yeah, the exhilarating, apart from the uh, that brilliant episode where they put the credits on about ten minutes into the show. <laughs> <laughs> just because you know, who thought of that I mean because yeah. actually we're watching the Python a normal episode just went past like nobody's business and so the idea that you could play with that and shrink it down and that other great set sketch is where they uh, they're in the jungle and they're going oh my god it's, we can't we can't go on here we're out of food we're starving to death we can't we can't go on my god we're alone my god why have you forsaken us and then one goes hang on Who's that over there filming us? And we turn round <laughs> towards the camera. And they go, oh, finally saved. And they join the cameraman and they stood there. Then one of the other ones looks around because they've shot it from another angle. And they look around and look at the other camera. And they walk to a third camera. And then there's another camera looking at those. Yeah, those kind of those kind of things which sort of um, sort of do your head in or just, just play with the convention, certainly. Of, of, I suppose, I mean, I think... Basil Fawlty is still the unrivaled of how sort of perfectly self-defeating a comedy character is. Or like, or like John Keyes says, you know, the, the essence of a comedy character is that they do not think they are funny. It's the last thing they think that they are funny. Apart from, apart from, of course, The Office. Yes, I think I think that's hard to watch. And I did get, I did get, I think I got a call back from from The Office for one part. Whether that was before Ricky Gervais was well known, I didn't quite get what they were on about. Again, it was very, very naturalistic, but in real life, he's exactly like the character, so it's a bit hard. It's like trying to get on with somebody, David Brent, in, in person. In retrospect, you know, his, 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 what's that great line he says, you know, said, oh, I, I think of myself first as a friend, second as an entertainer, and third as a boss. <laughs> <laughs> There are those people. Yeah, I've got a, I had a, a friend, a teacher friend, who was sort of saying, in all seriousness, and what's the great thing about teachers? It's kind of like you're a performer. In terms of you know, he creates his own downfall every time. Yeah, and that fateful mistake of the snobbery or the inability to not look at somebody's bosoms or you know, that fatal error or the des- decision to hide something from your wife, those kind yeah. of archetypes. Which I think, I mean, I don't know the... I don't think I've I tried to read some Molière, some of the which don't get don't translate very, very well these days, but those kind of those classic um you know the misanthrop or the the doctor is a bad doctor or the you know, the banker is a spendthrift or the well that kind of yeah, so that simple very often the thing is is the person who you know the funny person is the person who hates their job very often, aren't they? Well, yes, faulty. But I like Vic and Bob. I find I've, I do find after a bit I do I mean, they are sort of in attrition, like shooting stars and stuff like that. It kind of goes into an uncomfortable zone and sort of stays there and stays there and stays there and stays there and stays there. I couldn't say I don't think I enjoy it. I kind of sort of admire it, but I don't kind of yeah, yeah. completely. Because it's a bit, it's playfully misanthropic, isn't it? It's sort of, it's sort of taking, taking the mickey out of people. 
Well, apart from Vic and Bob, for you, who's who's come to well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I've kind of rediscovered the goons and Hancock, like in later life, uh, kind of recent, mm. more sort of in the last few years. I've kind of rediscovered the genius of Hancock, gone gone well before his time. You kind of wonder what what would he be doing now? You know, if he was if he was still here. You know, you could say the same, like Morecambe and Wise, obviously, would have been, would be up there in my favourites. The Ronnies, you know, Tommy Cooper, all those, all the, all the classics. Yes, Hancock in, uh, yes, I think it's one of my favourite. But again, the, the various movie when he spent with Goldson and Simpson and he thought he didn't need them and thought he could be, go to America and all that tragic stuff. Yeah. But I think, I think The Rebel, in terms of, again, we, we don't quite understand the uh, context of that sort of, Going to the office, going out of your mind, that English man with a bowler hat who's going to go insane, like Reginald Perrin. I saw Reginald Perrin again, very, very strange, Reginald Perrin, that sort of commuter sort of joke, because we, we kind of got, we grew long hair and had flares, and didn't really have the same problem. <laughs> but like that, going to Paris and being the artist, and it's my favourite line of all time. You remember the scene when he's at the, the party, when he's all with the glamorous women with the black polo neck jumpers with the black eyeliner. And this delightful woman says, I am an existentialist. All my friends are existentialists. And he said, well, it's a bit of company for you, isn't it? <laughs> yes, but weirdly, I don't know the, the, the Seinfeld and um, uh-huh. Kirby and Susan. No, I, I don't know. It's that weird. I mean, like with the Spinal Tap and the guys who did, you know, Dog Show and, and all those other... Oh, uh, Christopher Guest. Yes, and the one one about the one about the drama teacher. But again, it's improvised. But they talk too much. You know, nobody mm. talks that way. It's like people who talk in paragraphs. or people who, and that all that all comes from that. Um, it's that great guy in the Woody Allen movie, wasn't it? The Take the money and run. The the guy the interview on the street. We go. So you saw it happen? Yeah, I saw it. It was a Monday. I remember because it was because like I had a juice. It was like I had orange juice. Yeah, yeah, I definitely had a juice. Was it? Was it orange? Was it great? <laughs> what about what happened with the scene of the crime? Oh, yeah, it was kind of... And that, that was when it got, when the first kind of... The first time that had kind of happened. Yeah, some of the Americans, the Bob Newhart um, kind of people. Of course, the great, you know, Sean Locke has only recently departed and I only saw his 15 stories sitcom on sort of catch-up. That had some great, lovely things, you know, and it was, you know... The, in terms of what makes things work or what, what I kind of like, the scenes that really work, there was a couple of really cheeky, obnoxious kids and it was kind of, there was one scene when he was in those concrete playgrounds in between this housing estate. And I can't remember what the plot was. There was something gone missing or something. And he was trying to be nice to them. And these horrible kids were just sort of getting the better over him all the time. And you kind of get, that's the world. Is yeah. you know, Don't change, you won't win over them. And you try, you try and... It's the same moment as... That original um, This Is England movie where the little kid early on, the little skinhead kid and the older big brother, there's a beautiful moment early on in the film where the sort of surrogate brother said, don't worry, I'll look after you. And you kind of go, if he doesn't, the whole you. <laughs> so I kind of like that affection. The yeah. same kind of, yes, yeah, same kind of affection in uh, Gavin and Stacey, I suppose. Yeah, yeah I kind yeah. of like, I like that element of... Um, just people being warm and now me, uh, me and Robin, me and Robin Driscoll, uh, we did Les and Robert um, characters. Actually, that would have been ninety eight, I think. You know, we were nominated for the Perrier. We did a, 
a BBC Two pilot, but it was a bit of a strange. It was a bit of a strange, strange solitary world. Two blokes, but all of our rapport was partly based on us. But um, our little catchphrases were, you know, "Stop gassing, stop gassing." You can pack it in. Just pack it in, all right? You know, it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like what's Dick and Bob's one, their famous one. Oh, you wouldn't let you it just... lie. <laughs> those kind of, yeah, those kind of. I mean, I like, I like the element of the. That's why I think this is England. That that sort of comedy where you kind of the world is you're stuck with your best mate, and the two of you've got to try and work it out together. Yeah. But you've only got each opinion to go on. <laughs> talk a little bit about music now um have there been many musical loves in your life be it a band or a or a singer i would say um no actually recently i, I was clearing out the attic because we were thinking of having our attic converted mm-hmm. and i came across these big box of mixtapes that I made way back in the 80s they're all the familiar candidates prince tom waits you know uh lou reed Talking Heads, a bit of Van Morrison. Some was my little thing, you know, that kind of eccentric kind of stuff. Just going back to school days, um, I was a Jethro Tull, the flute playing one-legged genius. Um, yeah, so I got the, was my first ever record was This Was by Jethro Tull, which I bought from Virgin Records, which was at the Clock Tower in Brighton, where Boots now is. Where it is with those times when you could sit on a cushion and wear headphones and listen to it before you bought it. Um, yes, yeah, so I was mad. I loved them because they were they were sort of they pulled faces. I mean, it was stupid. They pulled faces. They looned about, and which is what you wanted to do when you're inhibited, trying to grow your hair like mad. You know, gurning, face pulling. Well, all that was that kind of. Um, in terms of the comedy vocabulary, it was um, yes, the looning about sort of thing. See a fat of why you know the. Uh, Bill, uh, was it Doug, Douglas, wasn't it? Jack Douglas used to do that. See, half oh after, my God, I love Jack Douglas. That, and there was that, all that kind of sort of manic, slightly sort of spastic movement from normal wisdom onwards to, yes, to which would Lee Evans picked up on it. Was yeah, it ever, yeah, yeah, yeah. never so humble. It was kind of something to do with your body, you know, kind of. So I think all of that contortion stuff. Yes, yeah, so they were very lunatic and stuff. So I loved, I loved Jeff Fatal all the way up till. Thick as a brick, uh, their concept album. But again, that time, you know, lots of people were doing concept albums. It'd be kind of the high decadence of why not? You know, people were pinched, but I wasn't a yet. I didn't like yes. I couldn't really get on with yes. Then I went to college, like in 76, and I can remember I came back to Brighton. I went to Bath, which was a bit rural. It was full of lots of people wearing clogs and wearing Wellington boots called Angus, riding, motor, <laughs> riding bikes and girls with Laura Ashley dresses. Yeah, yeah. Lying under, under spreading trees and stuff. So it, was, it was a bit like that. But I remember coming back to a party in, in Brighton and it was the first Elvis Costello album, you know, sort of 77. And I could literally, I mean, culture shock. I was sat in the corner looking at the cover and it was checkerboard. He was wearing glasses brothel creepers you know Elvis wasn't popular Elvis Presley nobody thought every, all, all visually and graphically and everything was wrong 
it was like a slap in the face. It wasn't sort of Robert Plant wearing a, an embroidered waistcoat showing his chest. You know, if this is one of you Anderson wearing a sort of mad dressing gown and lace-up medieval boots and stuff. Yes, yeah, so the very next day I went down Western Road in Brighton to a unisex hair salon and had all my hair cut off. <laughs> wow. Shoulder length cut off. Being an individual. <laughs> and um, it's funny, my mum, she said, oh, we, are, we didn't like your long hair at first, but uh, then we got used to it. Then she said, why do things have to change? And I said, I don't know, mum, I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> We've got short hair, we've, we've got we've the top button of our shirts up, we're wearing straight jeans, all right? <laughs> From then on, everything changed and it was all the buzzcocks and uh, talking heads and, and that kind of stuff. I'm assuming you must have got to a few gigs in Brighton. Um, I did go and see, this is much earlier when I was at school, I did go and see um, the Incredible String Band mm-hmm. at... Uh, the Brighton Dome, they were very good. I walked all the way home to Lance in all eight miles. Oh, my God. Uh, I saw Genesis do Foxtrot at the uh, the King's West, supported by um, Lindisfarne um, in those sort of heady, heady, heady days. Now, I suppose, really, I, I, the best thing I saw was the, the most latest David Byrne um, at the Brighton Centre, which was just astonishing with the, yeah. the dancers coming on and choreographing and sneaking off and the rhythms of it and I mean that was just I mean it was just like watching an absolute dream you know it was uh, no fan- absolutely fantastic and actually we got to go to see him afterwards backstage because um, a mate of ours Luke and Steve somebody who was in Stomp was in the company and everybody's having their selfie taking the day you burn because I was such a fan I couldn't do it I mean I kind of <laughs> Afterwards, I said to people, I said, oh, you've been stupid. I thought, I, no, I, I demand my right to keep my pe- heroes on their pedestals. Thank you very much. <laughs> I don't want to be in the same world as them. They've got to be up there. They've got to be up there. No, it's hard. Oh, they, yes, I, think, I suppose talking heads. I saw them at, um, or Dave Byrne, I saw them at the Dome, a smaller venue, and uh, and I was on the balcony. It was one of those weird things. I don't know if you get it with your favourite bands, but you know that thing where you think it's only you? that knows what all the words mean. <laughs> oh, yeah, been there. And I looked along the row and it was like, everybody was singing along to Psycho Killer like it was a hymn. Yeah. Don't touch me. And everybody was saying, don't touch me because my bed's on fire. And, and I was going, I know what that means. <laughs> I can't bear this. Yeah, yeah so that kind, of, that kind of sense. But uh, in terms of, yeah, Jethro Tull, that sort of precious period when you, are, you think you are, the only, you half think you've written the record, don't you? You half think you've, your brain, your brain has kind of created it from yeah, you. Yeah. Listen to, I did this. I did this. <laughs> it was a while back. It was, but um, with my actually with my fortieth birthday, my mate Robin said, "Oh, Jethro Taylor playing at the Dome. Do you want to go along? It's your, your birthday treat." And we went along, not having bought any of their records for years and years and years, and thoroughly enjoyed it. But there was one moment where they did. Um, this sounds like I'm a, I belong to a Jethro Tull group on Facebook and stuff, so I can't, I yeah. can't be disloyal. I love them to bits. I love them to bits. They were very, listening to Aqualung for the first time was fantastic. But there was one song called Budapest, which was introduced where Ian Anderson said, this song is about a wench that Martin met in Budapest. And me and Robin, <laughs> and the song sounded like a dire straight song. 
And at the interval, Robin said, do you want to go to the pub? And we left at half time, only because you realised you couldn't get back. We couldn't get back to that sort of thing when you're 16, carrying the albums under your arm to your yeah, mates. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was almost like you kind of, no, let that beautiful period where you've never heard anything so keep great. That, keep that memory. Yeah. Wow. There was a document on, on classic albums was, uh, on uh, the weekend with all about uh, Dark Side of the Moon and uh, David Gilmore said, I would love to be able to sit down and listen to that album for the first time. You know, yeah. and you know that's not possible because he's done every possible dubbing kind of that. But I think those kind of, you know, those, those kind of precious moments when you first hear that. Because also it's, it's, it's weird, isn't it? When, uh, when something is really good and you really love it to bits, you've got to play it about 20 times to remotely sort of get the, the juice yeah. out of it. Or yeah. sort of, it's like young kids watching The, the, the Little Mermaid Thousands, in fact. <laughs> yes, every important album has had that kind of effect. Now, I do like the various people. Like, you know, I was who was listening to. I like Cat Power. I like that. I like her, her mm-hmm. voice. And actually, I looked into there was at the weekend. There was that the things in terms of things that pass you by. I know she's probably not for me. There's a thing in the paper, Lord, Lord, not Lord. Oh I've yeah. Never, yeah. Never heard. This person, and she's she's a, she's a bit whaley for me. Is she? <laughs> well, listen, not bad. She was sort of kind of quite a nice. But again, you kind of go. She's complaining about being twenty-five and not being this famous. <laughs> but I haven't even heard of her. But I do like a f- female voices. Sandy Denny. Yeah, yeah. Christy. Oh, even fairy tale of New York. Um, you scumbag, you maggot, you cheap. <laughs> which are last, um, which always makes me, that always forces the tears, from, yeah. you know, that kind of, that always. So the, yes, there's, uh, yes, her Kite album is, is fantastic. I can still listen to that one. Yes, and Sandy Denny, you know, Billy Chimpley, they died. Sandy Denny fell down the stairs, I think, didn't she, and hit her head. Kirsty McCall was hit by some bastard in a speedboat. Yeah, yeah. It's always the way, though, isn't it? Yeah. You know, people taken before yeah. that, well before their time. Well, I did buy Sleaford Mods CD recently. They're very good. Because I saw, I saw them on George Holland. They did a, I mean, it sounded a bit like the streets. I mean, I did buy the streets when they first came out. And they're a little bit tuned, a little bit tuneless and a little bit annoying and stuff. I do, I do quite like that um, open, honest English vowel sound. But they did one thing where they had a girl singer who suddenly did these kind of yeah. breaks, these beautiful and lyrical breaks. And it went back into. <laughs> <laughs> As you can tell, I'm well up with the rap. <laughs> yes, and also your other your other fave, if I may point out, is Robert Palmer. He is my he's my boy. He is the, he is yeah. the boy. If he was still here, I've always said if he was still here, Robert Neil would not see me. Neil Divine Comedy would not see me as much. I'd be off mm. watching Robert. Yes wherever he was uh but I, I managed I met him a couple of times and I saw him live mm. a few times you know he had that eclectic aspect of his of his stuff it was he was literally doing a bit of everything his stuff from the 70s is just incredible you know he's just just one of those voices that could sing the phone book yeah I think I've got I think I've got the addicted to love album that one with that on it but uh... oh ripped on. <clears throat> yes but what happened to him? Did, was it tragic? Did it, heart, was heart, it attack. Can... heart attack. 
Yeah, he was in Paris uh, for some prom- promotional work. Heart attack, gone. Uh, what was yeah. that? 2000 and 2003? That's not right. You know, and I'm kind of, yeah, I'm kind of looking at Brian Ferry now and I'm kind of like, well, this is, Robert should be, you know, doing what Brian Ferry's doing now, playing all these, you know, playing all these big venues and stuff. It's just... Well, that must be Robert. Robert Farmer's like my dad. My dad had a heart attack about the same age, but he didn't. He didn't write as many good songs as Robert Farmer, to be honest. My dad. <laughs> so, uh, thanks for talking to me today, Tony. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Paula. <laughs>